Good evening. Please turn to Acts 17. Acts 17 is where we're going to begin our study this evening. I have desired to overview one of Paul's letters with you for some time because I believe that when we consider the beginnings of a congregation and then we go and move to the message of the letter or a letter that was sent to them, I really think that we grow to appreciate that group of Christians on a, on a more intimate level and we come to know them better. And as we come to know them better and we see their context and we see the words and read the words that were said to them in particular, I think we really can come to know ourselves more as a congregation and learn how we can grow more as a congregation by pursuing their strengths and avoiding their weaknesses and just learning how congregations should function and what they should focus on. And so tonight what I want to do is I want to focus on the highly successful Thessalonian congregation because I believe that they possessed an often forgotten tool, a tool that's often forgotten today at least. Because Paul in 1 Thessalonians, he focuses there on Jesus' return and he uses Jesus' return to motivate and propel this congregation, I believe, to their success in so many ways. But before we get into 1 Thessalonians and we see the message of Jesus' return permeating this letter, what I want to do is I want for us to establish a context there in Acts chapter 17 so we understand why Jesus' return is so motivating and so significant for this congregation. So join with me and we're going to read Acts 17 and verses 1 through 10 to set the context for us. Speaking of Paul and Silas, Luke says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, speaking of Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night to Berea. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia, which Macedonia was simply a major province in the Roman Empire. But this city, Thessalonica, within Macedonia, was filled with Greeks. But because there was a significant enough Jewish presence, Paul went right to the synagogue because they had enough Jews to have a synagogue. So he went right there and for three Sabbath days, 
he presented the scriptures to them and spoke to them about Jesus Christ and how he must suffer. And a few of them joined, as we can see from the beginning of verse 4 there. But it's clear from the end of verse 4 that it was Paul's efforts outside of the synagogue that proved most successful. Many Greeks joined Paul and Silas. This is quite significant for us to consider simply because it tells us what the makeup of this congregation was. And it helps us understand their background. These new Christians were mostly Gentiles that, as 1 Thessalonians 1.9 will later refer to, have come directly out of idolatry and the sinful life there to pursue God, to pursue Christ. But Christianity quickly became difficult for these new Christians, didn't it? We can see that there in verse 5. The Jews became jealous of Paul and Silas's success. And so they go looking for Paul and Silas to destroy them. They can't find them. And so they take apparently Jason, this guy that Luke and the, and, uh, and, uh, The guy he wrote it to, I can't think of his name. Don't try to think of names off the fly. It never works. Uh, They try to, they take Jason and a few of these new Christians to, uh, in a mob, they attack his house and they threaten him. They take him to the authorities. The authorities and the people are all disturbed because apparently they have gone against the decrees of Caesar. They have proclaimed another king, Jesus. And they are suffering for their new faith. Just imagine being in their shoes, those new Christian shoes, as they are suffering in the first few weeks or the first couple of months of knowing Jesus. How scary. How terrifying. These were not Christians with years under their belts. These were new converts suffering in their own city at the hands of their own brothers for having faith in Christ. But consider also how Paul feels Imagine what it would be like to teach your neighbor the gospel and they come to learn Jesus Christ and a few weeks later they were attacked and the police arrested them and charged them bail to get them out of prison, to get them out of jail. Imagine this, how, how worried you would be about those new Christians. That has got to be scary. And it certainly it was. We can see that it was quite nerve-wracking for Paul. He had to leave the town. Things were so dangerous. We learned that there in verse 10. He goes by night to Berea. And Paul couldn't take the worry anymore as he continued on from Berea to Athens to Corinth. He sent Timothy to the to the Thessalonians there in Thessalonica and he had to know how they were doing. He had to encourage them. And so he sent Timothy, we learned that in First Thessalonians, to encourage the Thessalonians in the midst of their persecution to stand fast, to be strong. And Timothy, after exhorting them, he returned from Thessalonica to Corinth where Paul was to give him a report of how the Christians were doing in the midst of their persecution. And then Paul began writing 1 Thessalonians there from Corinth on his second missionary journey. Our questions about this letter then are obvious. Why is Paul writing so quickly to these Thessalonians? What is going on that he feels the need to write to them so soon? How are the Thessalonians doing? 
Well, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to go ahead and start getting into the letter. And as we start getting into the letter, I want to just give you an idea of what we're going to see here. What we're going to see is how this letter this letter does reveal how they were doing. Paul spends three chapters explaining how they were doing, and it tells us why they were doing so well, what motivated them to do so well, because they were doing well. We can see that very obviously from the first three chapters because Timothy's report of them must have been great. The first three chapters, Paul spends in thanksgiving. And if you study Paul's letters very much, you know that he normally only spends a few verses in thanksgiving. Well, Paul continues from chapter 1 to chapter 2 all the way through the end of chapter 3, thanking God for these Thessalonians, thanking God that these Thessalonians had received the gospel in affliction, that they were spreading the gospel in the midst of affliction, that they were growing in love, enduring in suffering, and doing so much more. These Thessalonians... We're doing great. And even in chapters 4 and 5, you can notice that uh, Paul goes on to exhort them in, in, in ways of sexual morality, needing to be sexually pure, and he exhorts them in love, and he exhorts them in other ways. But even as he exhorts them, he admits two or three times, I really don't need to be writing this to you. You are already doing so well. You're already doing what I'm telling you. This letter turns out to be very encouraging and upholds them and tells them that they are doing really well and they need to continue on the same path of growth. In fact, chapter 5 and verses 12 through 13 tell us that this congregation that had only been around for a few months already had spiritual leadership. These Christians weren't perfect, but I believe we can see they are a great example of spiritual growth, aren't they? We often say that spiritual growth doesn't happen overnight. And I believe we're right in saying this. Sanctification does take time. But I believe that the Thessalonians show us that visible growth does not have to take decades either. Sometimes I wonder if we're crawling the race instead of running it. The sins we were redeemed from seem to stick around for decades. Sin, uh, the, after decades, many do not even find their place in the work of ministry. They don't find roles to focus on, to work on in a congregation in Christ's kingdom. Comparing ourselves, especially with this Thessalonian congregation, makes it difficult because we see with clarity how quickly growth can happen, how quickly spiritual growth can happen in people's hearts, in people's lives, and in a congregation, and how the gospel can spread from an area in just a few months. I want us to really consider tonight, what's wrong? Why does real visible spiritual growth seem to take so long today? When then it was obvious for these Christians, it did not take so long. That's where the theme of this letter comes in, I believe. I believe that discovering the theme running through this letter provides the answer to the Thessalonians' success. The theme of Jesus' return. 
And it's really easy to find out that this is the theme throughout this letter because it permeates this letter and it completes each chapter and speaks of how it motivates the Thessalonians, how it motivates all Christians in their entire Christian walk. I want you to notice just on the screen these passages really quickly. Thessalonians 1 and verse 10. As it complete, as he completes the chapter, he says, to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus who delivers us. And we're going to see this at the end of each chapter how the return of Jesus comes up. Chapter 2 and verse 19. For what is our hope before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Chapter 3 and verse 13. So that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Chapter 4 and verse 17. Then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Chapter 5 and verse 23. May your whole spirit be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord and the return of Jesus is referred to throughout this letter and is even spoken of in depth. These passages don't even uh, include how Paul speaks of the return of Jesus in depth from the end of chapter 4 and through the first half of chapter 5. The return of Jesus was important to these Christians. It was important to Paul, it was their motivation for their entire Christian walk. The idea that would have gone through their minds is Jesus returned to heaven, but he is coming back and he's coming back soon. Be ready. That's how they would have viewed Jesus return. It was a passionate idea for them. I believe this tool that propelled the Thessalonians to their success is a tool I believe we often forget, a tool we often lack. I'm afraid that today we have lost a passion for Jesus returning in the clouds and Him returning now. These Christians suffered, and because of that, they longed for Jesus to return. But let's admit, aren't we pretty comfortable in the United States? Aren't we pretty comfortable with our lives I remember when this first struck me. I was in college having a conversation with a uh, college friend of mine, a Christian college friend of mine, who said she could accept it if Christ returned now, but she would really, she really hopes he would wait till a little bit later because she she really wanted to experience more of life. She wanted to uh, finish her degree, get married, go uh, have kids, build a home together, just experience more of life here. Isn't this such a dangerous thought to be running through our minds? Isn't this such a dangerous idea to love this world so much that Jesus' return is not what we long for each day? We talk about trying to be like first century or New Testament Christians, but they had a completely different attitude. They could not wait for Jesus to return. And this fueled a passion and an urgency for their Christian walk that we oftentimes can lack.
the reality of Jesus' return. After Paul wrote this letter and it was delivered to them and they read it, the reality of Jesus' return was so ingrained in these Christians' minds and lives and in this congregation that Paul had to write a follow-up letter maybe just a few months later to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Because they had started to quit their jobs just to look for Jesus' return. It was so exciting to them that they did that. That was a problem, wasn't it? They took it too far. But don't we oftentimes have the opposite problem? Instead of quitting our pursuits to look for Jesus' return, isn't the problem that we are so motivated by our pursuits of this world and we are so involved in our pursuits of this world that we forget Jesus is coming. We forget He can come any minute to rescue us. We forget to even long for it. The problem, I believe, is that we often feel like we have our entire lives to prepare for Jesus' return and the day of the Lord. We've got these 10 and these 20 year plans for growth. And I believe there can be some benefits to 10 and 20 year plans. But let's be real. 20 years is far away. 10 years is far away. And I suggest that even five years, even one year, is quite far away. That's quite far away when Jesus could return now. We need to realize that Jesus is returning now. Notice how Paul reminds them of the importance of this in chapter 5. Turn to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians and notice how important it was for the Thessalonians to remember that His coming was upon them. Chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief." For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. These Thessalonians, because of what Paul wrote to them there were motivated by Jesus' return. They were ready for Jesus' return because they believed it could happen any moment. So much so that Paul even writes to them a few months after turning from idolatry, turning from their old lives, he says, it's not going to come like a thief in the night. You're ready for it. So continue to be ready for it. Imagine how much you and I's lives would change if we knew that Jesus was coming tonight, even at the amen of the service. Our lives would change. We would have lived today differently, wouldn't we have? We would have lived this past weekend differently. We would have lived the past week and year quite differently, wouldn't we have, if we knew that Jesus was coming tonight? 
everything about our lack of passion, our lack of urgency would have changed. We would be excited, maybe scrambling. There are so many ways that we can apply this idea that Jesus is returning and our need to get that in our minds now. And Paul applies that in many ways throughout this letter. One of the reasons why I find this letter so exciting. But tonight, with the rest of our time, let's just spend two ways noticing how Paul applies this idea of how Jesus' return motivates us, motivates the Christian walk. And the first way I want for us to notice that is how Paul speaks of uh, Jesus' return motivating holiness in our lives. We can see this in multiple points throughout the letter. We can see it in chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 4, and chapter 4, verse 7. But what I want for us to notice especially is chapter 1 and verses 9 through 10 and how Paul speaks of the Thessalonians turned from idolatry. Notice with me there chapter 1 verses 9 through 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. These Thessalonians were idolaters just months before. And here's the question. Why doesn't Paul have to write to them? Get out of your idolatry. I told you before. Get out. Stop living these sensual lives. Why does he not have to write this to them? How were they able to turn from idolatry and from those sensual lives so quickly? I suggest to you because it's what verse 10 says here. They turned from idolatry to wait for Jesus from heaven. They were motivated by Jesus' return in the clouds. Their knowledge of Jesus' return caused them to seek purity and to seek holiness immediately. I believe our lack of passion for Jesus' return now hurts us seriously in this. We often think of how judgment will come at the end of our lives when we die instead of thinking how Jesus can return at any moment. And so then we become lax in our pursuit of holiness, lax in our pursuit of purity, lax in ridding our lives of sin. It's not that we necessarily feel great about sin. Don't get me wrong. It's just that we don't see judgment as an imminent event. And so we aren't ready as we ought to be. We can see overcoming slavery to particular sins in a few years. We're going we're gonna to work hard over the next few years to get it done. Instead of getting it done now. Getting rid of the sin that has been holding us in slavery now. Love should certainly be our number one motivation for getting rid of sin because we love Christ and we love fellowship with Him. But there is a reason Jesus says He's coming soon. This is Christ's built-in motivation to you and to me to get our lives right today. And so we cannot make any excuses. We cannot say, well, you, you don't understand my situation, God. You don't understand where I've come from. I didn't grow up with Christianity or I've had an afflicted past year or past decade. I've, I've suffered. We have no excuses. Consider these Thessalonians. They were persecuted for their faith. They had every reason to leave Jesus Christ. 
their city would have welcomed would have welcomed their turn from Christianity. They would have opened them, their arms for them to turn back to their idolatry, to turn back to their sensual lifestyles. But they refused to turn back. Notice how Paul speaks of the importance even of this purity in chapter 4 and verses 7 to 8 as he speaks of the importance of holiness. Uh, it says there in chapter 4, verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. This he says in the context of sexual purity. Uh, he says this there to these Thessalonians who had come out of idolatry and were certainly addicted to these lifestyles, who were certainly well accustomed to these sinful lifestyles every day. But he said, even to those Christians who have been Christians maybe for just a few months, he said, if anyone disregards this, even in these past few months, they are disregarding God. How serious. God has not called us to holiness in 10 to 20 years, brethren. He has called us to holiness Today, He has called us to purity today. We don't have years to overcome our sins. And let's face it, we've got sins that we've been battling far too long that must be overcome today. We've got that long-battled bitterness, that long-battled envy, that long-battled gossip, that long-battled lust, that long-battled sin in our marriages, crumbling marriages, rebellious children, children that don't know about the Lord, too long. It is time for us to get right with the Lord. It is time for us to spread this passion for Jesus' return throughout our families because our kids don't have time. We don't have time. Our church does not have time. Our neighbors do not have time. Jesus is coming. This was imminent for them. Jesus has told us this for a reason. He wants us to be right now. He does not want us to grow in 20 years. He wants us to grow now. And if He happens to not come tomorrow, then great. Tomorrow we can recognize that He's coming that night and we've got even more time to grow. With what great intensity we would fight these sins every hour if we just lived every day with the knowledge of Jesus' imminent return. Does Jesus' return frighten you? It shouldn't. Paul says there in chapter 5 and verses 1 through 10 that it wasn't a frightening thing for these Christians. It would not come like a thief in the night. Let's allow Jesus' return to motivate holiness in our lives. Second, let's notice how Jesus' return motivates spiritual work in Christ's kingdom. Paul speaks of this in particular at the end of chapter 2 as he concludes chapter 2 speaking of how hard he has worked to preserve the souls of these Christians, to work hard for the Thessalonians. Notice what he says there in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 2. But since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy." 
Paul is speaking here of how his and others' motivation to teach and to fight for other souls was Jesus' return. It was a battle. They were fighting a battle to teach and to exhort these Christians. Satan was fighting against them. He was working in the hearts of these Jews. He was getting them out of the city, preventing them from returning, but they did not stop. Why? Why did they not stop fighting? Why did Timothy go there though he knew, though he knew that the day, the situation in Thessalonica was quite dangerous? Why? Because they knew Jesus was returning and they desired to show Jesus the fruit of their labor. Notice what he says there in verse 19. He wanted to have a hope. He wanted to have a joy. He wanted to have a crown of boasting when Jesus returned. And what was that crown of boasting? It was the Thessalonians. Paul and his fellow workers wanted to show off the Thessalonians' faith to Jesus Christ on His return. Look at the work we have been doing, Jesus, for you. They did not want the Thessalonians' faith to be left undone, and so they worked with passion for them. I believe this is the second way that we are severely harmed by lack of passion for Jesus returning today. So many have little idea how they fit into the work of ministry, how how they fit into Christ's kingdom, how they fit into a local congregation, what work they should focus on, what strengths they have, how they can work for Christ. And if that's the situation, I want to ask, what is going to be our hope, our joy, or our crown of boasting when Jesus returns? What work will we have been doing that we desire to show Jesus when He returns? Seriously. There is so little urgency in so many saints' lives to work like a saint. To work like a child of God. Instead of desiring to be ready for Jesus' return now. Instead of desiring to work for Jesus now. We often see our evangelism, our service, our love, our shepherding, our, even our prayer life, even our Bible study as more of a long-term future goal instead of a thing to be grasped and accomplished and pursued with all of our might today, to serve people today, to shepherd people today, to find a work in ministry today, to find a focus There is a reason why Paul and the Thessalonians could not stop working for Jesus. They knew their time was short. They knew at any moment Jesus could return and they wanted to be found working when Jesus did return. How motivating that would be to consider that Jesus could return at any minute, at any moment. To think, I want Jesus to find me working when He comes. Not asleep, not wasting my time. And so we've got work to get done now. And so I'll ask each of us, what work do you love to do for Christ and His kingdom? What work do you love to do in this community for Christ? What work do you love to do in this congregation for Christ? Think about it. And whatever it is, pursue it with all your might. Pursue it with all of your energy and your time 
Because we must have a crown of boasting. We want to be ready for Jesus' return. We want to be anxious for Jesus to return, to show Him, this is what I have been doing for you. Let me enter into your kingdom, Lord. It is not that we are saved by works, but that is the fruit that comes from the true Christian life. And so then we need to see that that friend we've been wanting to teach needs to be pursued now. That hurting person that we desire to comfort needs to be comforted now. Those enemies we've made need to become brothers today. Those, uh, those gifts that we've not been pursuing need to be, need to be focused on and strengthened now. It's time to become a teacher today, to start pursuing teaching today, to start pursuing service today, to become a servant today, to go home tonight, to get a game plan. We've got to start working like saints because we want to love His coming when He does return. Time is running low and it is almost run out on us. If we will have this conviction of Jesus' imminent return, we can have this same passion and urgency that these Christians had, that Paul had, that the Thessalonians had. We can have the same passion for work in Christ's kingdom. Turn to the end of 1 Thessalonians with me and notice how Paul concludes this letter in chapter 5 and verse 23 with this remaining thought of sanctification and how Christ's return motivates them. Now may the God of peace, verse 23, if I didn't already say it, chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. To be ready for Jesus imminent return, we've got to create this culture, this passion in our hearts, in our families, in this church and in this community, this passion for Jesus return. That means we've got to change the way we speak. We've got to change the way we pray. Just consider how Paul or how John ends the book of Revelation. When Jesus ends the book by saying, surely I am coming soon. John replies, come Lord Jesus, come. We need this renewed passion For Jesus' return in our conversation, in our prayer life, and in our minds and in our hearts, we need to start reminding each other in our homes, reminding our children, reminding our spouses, reminding our relatives, reminding our friends in our community, reminding one another that Jesus is returning now. It needs to become a part of our language, a part of our culture today. We need to start waking each day with prayer and begging Christ to come quickly Because too often we slumber and we grow lax in our pursuit of holiness, in our pursuit of hard work for Christ. And if it's difficult for us to beg for Christ's return now, that ought to show us that something is wrong. We ought to love the idea of Christ coming now. And so if we recognize then that we are slumbering, if we've grown lax, then we need to see that if we do not desire Jesus' return now, we will not love His coming when He does come. If we struggle for a passion 
for Jesus and for holiness and for work in Christ's kingdom, I believe that you and I can take our growth in our hearts, in our families, in this congregation, our growth and our urgency to the next level by having a greater conviction of Jesus' return and the day of the Lord coming now. This is what motivated the Thessalonians. Today is the day our souls could be required of us. Are we ready for His return? If not, let us start praying for it. Let us start getting ready for it. Let's start working for it. Let's start getting rid of sins for it now because time is running out. Our sanctification must be brought to its full completion. And if it has not in you, if there is any way that we can motivate you and help you in in your walk with Christ and help you draw nearer to Him and to repent of slumbering, to repent of this lax attitude that we have all had creep in our hearts, then let us know. Let us talk to you. Let us know publicly or let us talk to you in private. If there's any way we can help you, remember, Jesus is coming now. Come forward to the front while we stand and while we